Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. A warning, although we are not explicit at any time, we do mention violence, adult careers, and drug use. So again, I think you need to preview this one before allowing the younger members of your household to listen. Thanks a lot. Hello, and welcome back to our coverage of Maya Angelou. This is part two. And before we dive into the rest of her life, why don't we take a step back and give you a little refresher on what happened in part one. Little Marguerite Johnson was raised mostly by her paternal grandmother in a very small Arkansas town. She lived through an assault and five years of silence after that assault until a very kind woman used poetry to heal the 12-year-old. She then moved to her mother's house in San Francisco, California. And after a visit to her father's house in San Diego, California, she lived on the streets for a couple of weeks until she was welcomed back to the open arms of her mother. How's that? It took us an hour the last time. (laughs) So 15-year-old Maya is back from Mexico, but all is not awesome back at her mother's house. Brother Bailey and Mother Dear are at cross purposes, shall we say, and their disagreements lead Bailey to leave. And I have to say Maya's flailing a little. Her rock, her friend is gone. She asked her mother if she could take a break from school and go to work. Well, you're a year ahead, said mother. And just like myself and just like Lauren Graham, no relation, actress from the Gilmore Girls, we feel like we had a bonus year, you know, like almost like a year in the bank that you could spend frivolously or however you wanted. And Mother Dear agreed. Maya, though, had purposely never taken typing and never taken shorthand because the simple reason she did not want to be shoehorned into any job that required shorthand or typing. (laughs) (laughs) She did not want to work in a white lady's kitchen. Remember how that went with the purposeful dropping of the dishes. And if she went to one of the local factories to do war work, they would require a birth certificate that proved she was 16. And as she was only 15, that was not a possibility. But traveling around the city, she had realized that there were female cable car conductors. Now, the fact that they were all white women didn't really occur to her and wasn't part of her thought process. But dang, that uniform they wore and that little changer on their belt. What a draw. So she went to her mom and she said, look, I'm going to take this semester off and I'm going to be a streetcar conductor. And her mother, instead of saying, what? That's the craziest thing ever. She said, "Okay, baby, make it happen. Because Vivian is this mother who's just trying to encourage her kids to do what they want to do. Now, this was 1943 and in the middle of World War II, so it was not the lady person part that startled the woman at the trolley office. It was the color of Maya's skin. This receptionist tried every way from Sunday, as my grandmother would say, to get out of even letting Maya put in her application. For weeks, they were locked in this battle of wills. And Maya just kept escalating it. First, she just showed up at the office and they said, no, the hiring manager isn't here. And she left. But then she started staying and sitting there all day. You know what is so cool about this mother, though, that Maya had? Mother made her a breakfast, gave her lunch money and gave her car fare just as if she was really going to work to fight this battle. 
And her mother just said, she's really good with the like one liner. Well, nothing beats a trial, but a failure. So go ahead. Might not have had much faith that it would succeed, but she had to admire the persistence of a girl who would put herself through so much turmoil for this one thing. Maya went to these African-American associations and asked for help with the trolley company. And they're like, we could get you a job that pays double that with no trouble. Why are you so Uh interested in this? And she's like, no, I will be a conductorette and no one will stop me. And they're like, "Uh, all right, goodbye. You know, they... (laughs) So she did this all on her own just by wearing people down. And finally, this receptionist said, okay, that's enough. I'm sick of seeing your face. Fill out an application. Here it is. They gave her blood tests. Interesting. Rorschach tests. This is pre-Myers-Briggs. It's kind of a personality test. I was looking at the Rorschach tests online, by the way, and I think I just would fail every single one. If you give uncommon answers, that's concerning to them. And I did not pick the common answer for any of the cards. Well, I would think that that would be a positive thing that you don't think like other people. Nope. It, hmm. it, evidently not good. <laughs> so you just go, it's a butterfly. Then you pass. It actually has very little to do with the content of your answer and more to do with like where in the picture your answer was located, how you explain how you see this and what makes you feel this way about this picture. It has very little to do with when you say the word butterfly. It's very confusing to me. I am an INTP on Myers-Briggs. I do know that. (laughs) (laughs) And well, I'll tell you, this ENFJ would also fail because I'd be like giving whole stories. Oh, I know that. That's this little girl who went to the top of this hill to find the perfect blueberries. (laughs) I would not be surprised if Maya Angelou was an ENFJ. Let's look that up later. Okay. (laughs) Barack Obama was. Okay, we'll look it all up. We'll have it for you by the media section. So stay tuned. Um, So the funny thing about this is they went through all these tests, both physical and mental, but no one ever verified her birth certificate, which I thought was funny, or checked her, quote, references because she lied on her application and said she was, quote, the companion and driver for a white lady named Annie Henderson in Arkansas, which is her grandmother's name. Right. So, okay. Instead, they gave her her uniform and her money change and belt and made the cool sound and and the honor of being the first African-American conductor on the trolley cars. Now, there are some claims that she wasn't the first Black conductor. I mean, there's a lot of discussion about it, whether there were Black men. But she was definitely the first Black female conductor on the San Francisco trolley cars. So her persistence paid off. And for a semester, she just reveled in the freedom and and the brand new feeling of earning her own money for the first time. And that's great. But when she got back to school, she found that her life experience sort of placed a barrier between her and her schoolmates. Their concerns were not her concerns. In the process of trying to figure out who she was, Maya sought out a physical encounter with the most handsome, popular boy in the neighborhood, a night which didn't actually answer any of her philosophical fundamental questions, but left her in a situation. 19-year-old babe, which is the only way she refers to him in anything that I saw, uh, left her pregnant and hollow emotionally. And he wanted absolutely nothing to do with being a father. As a matter of fact, he even claimed he wasn't the father, even though Maya knew for sure that he was. Of course, as anyone in this situation would feel, she was in turmoil. She wrote, 
The world had ended, and I was the only one who knew it. She reached out to Bailey, who was serving in the military, and pretty much asked him what to do. And he said, well, number one, do not leave school again, because if you if you leave again, you're not going to go back. You just got your motivation back. And number two, do not tell Mother Dear or she will make you quit school. And that'll be the end of it. Which was actually not that hard since Vivian had gone off to Alaska to run some clubs, some gambling clubs. And Daddy Clydell, who didn't raise Maya, he wasn't going to notice anything or wasn't going to say anything about her physical appearance because it would be rude for him to say anything. So as far as her household was concerned, she was in a good place. Physically, she was very tall. So it took a while for the pregnancy to even show. Well, Maya made it to her high school graduation at eight months pregnant, and um, she got her diploma. And that night, she left a note. Parents, I am sorry to bring this disgrace on the family, but I am pregnant. Marguerite. And all her mother asked was, do you love the father? And Maya said, no. And so Vivian said, like she had been this whole time as teenage Maya's mother, well, then we're going to have a baby to take care of and we're getting a new member in our family. And that was it. That she was very supportive of her. So her mother made sure she had doctor visits. Her mother made sure she had actual maternity clothes instead of just two big sweaters. And three weeks after graduation, Maya welcomed her son, Clyde Bailey Johnson, into the world. Now, he later changed his name to Guy to prevent confusion. Susan, should we just move forward with the name Guy? Uh, sure. Maya had a hard time bonding with Guy at first, but her mother helped her. And by a month after he was born, Guy was definitely a part of Maya's heart. That's actually more common than you think. I have to confess that I did not bond with Jet right away either. So that really seemed familiar to me. And um, it's kind of shocking to admit, and people don't like to hear about that. But sometimes you just have to be persistent in that too. Sometimes it's not instant. Yeah. I just love that her mother not only supported her emotionally through this time, but because she used to be a nurse, she was supported her physically during the birth of the baby. Vivian was right there with her, coaching her and holding her hand and getting her through the birth. I love that. I just love her as a mother here. Yes. I, she is an interesting character, I'm telling you. She is a survivor, and I think Maya got a lot of that from her. So yeah. Maya had wanted desperately to go to college, and... Mother dear, to her credit, and Daddy Clydell both were all about helping her to do it. You and Guy live with us. We'll get through this whole thing together. But what was it about Maya that wouldn't let her accept this? She said she felt guilty. She felt embarrassed at her situation. And it manifested kind of as pride. She took Guy and left home to set out on their own in the big world. And she wrote later, I had no understanding about anything. I was so stupid that my face burns to think of it now. And imagine her mother at the same time telling her this, do right. Don't let anyone raise you from the way you've been raised. No, you will always have to make adaptations in love relationships, in friends, in society, in work, but don't let anyone change your mind. And remember, you can always come home. This was monumental when she said this because it was that moment when Maya decided she was going to stop calling her lady and call her mother. Mm. Oh, sorry, I'm getting mom goose pimples on me. I love it. But it had taken this long to rebuild the trust. 
So there was a series now of a sort of fake it until you make it jobs. She got a job as a cook, which came up in a restaurant at $75 a week, which was a very, very good wage. Maya is a quick study. So even though she didn't know how to cook Creole, she decided to just jump in and it worked out great. The head cook showed her the recipes she wanted anyway. So it doesn't matter that I don't know anything except for green pepper, onion, and garlic and rice. So Maya is here with another piece of advice. In addition to persistence, be brave and just start. Ask questions. She spent her spare time reading Russian literature and reveled in the darkness and the emotion of it because the Smiths were not yet invented. In fact, they weren't even born. (laughs) She kept feeding her fine mind with information. She moved to a new city. She got a new style. She started wearing peasant blouses and flowing skirts and listening to music and learning about that too. And it's just kind of living as well as she could that early 20s exploratory lifestyle that is such a key part of people's life, I think. She took all kinds of jobs. She took waitressing jobs. She was a paint stripper in a mechanic shop where she had to strip the paint with her fingers. It sounds so painful to me. She was a, quote, shake dancer in a nightclub. Use your imaginations on that one. She operated a house of negotiable affection. She met a married man who broke her heart. Did I bury the lead somewhere in that paragraph? (laughs) Yes, I did. (laughs) Maya became a PIMP for a little while. And fear of legal trouble sent her flying back to Stamps, Arkansas, off to her grandmother and the safety of a familiar background. So Maya back in Stamps, Arkansas, had just changed too much. She'd seen too much to fit back into the segregated world of the South. She went into town to get a dress pattern. And what? I don't even know. Is there a word for the thing, that comedy thing where two people are facing each other and meet and then they sidestep each other left, right, left, right, and nobody can pass? Well, it turned into a shouting match. Maya was offended by the white salesperson's condescension. The white ladies were appalled that Maya was being, quote, sassy or worse, quote, uppity. It ended with Maya screaming to the white sales ladies in Stamps, Arkansas, I advise you to address me as Miss Johnson and I will refer to you as Miss Idiot, Miss Stupid and Miss Fool if I ever have need to refer to you again. Now, how do we all think that went? (laughs) A stockroom employee of color had already telephoned back to grandmother at the store. And Maya got a lecture involving, you think those crazy people won't kill you because you've been to California that they won't put on their white sheets and ride on over here. Maya got a beating from her grandmother and Maya got a one-way ride straight out of town. She got back and she decided that her next career move, another one in uniform, just like the cable car conductor, would be in the army. Well, it was good pay. It was respectable. They would give you housing. They provide food. She could save. She could provide a great life for her son, send money home. And after she got out, the GI Bill would help her to buy a house so she could set herself up for her future. And her mother said, I'll support you in this. We'll take care of Guy here, but make sure to start at the top if you can. And so Maya applied to officer training school. Again, lying on her application that she didn't have a child. She got the call that she had lied on her application and she had been biting her fingernails going, I know, 
I know I lied. Like, <laughs> I do have a child, but I hope they don't find out. I hope they don't ask around. You know, she kind of counts on people not checking her resume. Mm-hmm. And so when they called her in and, and said she lied, they said, you said you'd never been associated with the Communist Party. And she's like, I... Uh, what? She was rejected because in high school, she had taken dancing lessons at the California Labor School, which, according to the people in the army, was a known communist front. That school was on a blacklist where she had taken dance lessons. I mean, it's not like she's sitting there absorbing the philosophy of Karl Marx. Mm Mm-mm. It's a movement class, but they were like, we're not going to prosecute you for lying because you're young, but you can't, we can't have you in the army. You're dismissed. She had sold everything she owned to get ready for this trip and and she was just devastated. So she was working as a waitress again when a man named R.L. Poole came by looking for a female dancer to join his act. I'm a dancer. She said, sure, why not? Her, Her philosophy was if that school took away an opportunity, it may as well give her one back. (laughs) And so her audition went so horribly, though, by the way, that she ended up crying on the ground. But he still gave her another chance. And they ended up performing uh, in local gigs as Poole and Rita. And she said that though she felt like she was scrambling around the bottom of the show business ladder, that she was on her way up and she quit her day job, which, you know, you should never do. (laughs) Right away. And she thought she was in love with this guy. Okay, side note. I just want to say something that astonished me throughout her autobiography. And Susan and I literally just talked about what to do about this. Just peppered asides like BT dubs. Maya came home. The house is covered in blood. Mother dear was drinking tea and explaining she had to teach a man some respect. (laughs) And it's not even the main story. Right. Oh, you know, I had to tell him about himself, you know? (laughs) Anyway, back to the action of Maya's life that doesn't involve blood, but does involve heartbreak. R.L. Poole suddenly had bad news. His old partner slash flame had come back to town and I'm going to take up with her again. Bye-bye. Just like that. After a quite natural human wallow, she decided to pack up her tap shoes and stop, quote, I'm quoting her, the self- pity and get on with life. Would you be half so resilient? I would not. I would not. I don't know. I don't even think I would have made it on the streets at 15. So man, let me quote Maya again. After all, only poets can care about what happened to the snows of yesteryear. I did not have time to be a poet. Oh, Mm -hmm. yeah, that's a good one. She fell prey to yet another predatory man who seduced her with affection and material goods and an appeal to save him from peril into taking the step into becoming an actual prostitute. In the course of this relationship, she returned to the house where her son Guy was being cared for and found it boarded up. Her son was missing and she had to track this woman called Big Mary, who drank whiskey out of teacups, by the way, all the way to Bakersfield, California, by asking total strangers along the way if they'd seen anything and if they knew somebody named Big Mary. She was full of terror. She was full of shame that she had brought herself to this point where her son was gone, taken by a, a someone to some place, and no one was helping her. And she finally got a tip and found him. And the lady's like, I hope you're not mad at me. Oh, my God. Mad isn't the word, I I don't think. 
So she, one after the other, lost several jobs and her famous, admirable resilience was cracking. And I quote, I was in a state again that was bloodline familiar, up a tree, out on a limb, in a pickle, in a mess. Survival was all around me, but it didn't take hold. I'd lost belief in myself. My last hope was gone. Every way I'd thought of to get out of the maze had proved to be a false exit. My once lively imagination would not come up with yet one more fantasy. For the first time in my life, I sat down defenseless to await life's next assault upon me. That's heartbreaking. And a surprisingly long time coming. She had so much strength in her. I wonder, too, you know how a person's brain isn't fully developed until their early 20s? So she had gone through all that other stuff, you know, as a teenager, and now she's hitting her early 20s and maybe she's being able to, I don't know, that part of her brain that's telling her cause and effect and consequence oh. is start, has been formed. And yeah, just a theory. Before that, there is. I mean, just from watching my son, there is this like ridiculous cloud of optimism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, huh. Okay. You know what? What is it? The prefrontal cortex? Yeah, don't know what it is. I'm lucky I remembered the whole brain thing. (laughs) So a story that didn't, to me, start out as beneficial ended up being something that saved her from maybe the wrong path. A man came along whose job it was to sell clothes from the manufacturer, and he and I'm the whole time I'm like in a movie screaming, no, Maya, don't do it again. He's like, can I use your house for the ladies to try stuff on? They like to see a woman around. They don't like to get undressed if there's just a man. And I just really need to sell these clothes. And she agreed to let him do that for a fee, but then did her the kindness of scaring her straight. He took her to basically an opium den and showed her with his arm, this is your future if you don't get out of here and go home. Right. I show you your future like the ghost of Christmas future in Dickens. And I give you this way to avoid it. Sell all these clothes that I have. Keep the money for yourself and your son and go home. And she did. So she's back in the San Francisco Bay Area. She's only 22 years old. And she accepts a position at a record store. She's working in a record store. That's perfectly respectable. Lots of people come in. You know, she plays records for them. This is the, I wish I lived in the era of the old timey record stores where you could go in the booth and listen to the album before you bought it. Have you seen Umpire Records? No, what is it? Oh, highly recommend. It's got like, it's the first time anyone ever saw like Renee Zellweger uh, Liv Tyler's in it. Empire Records takes place in a record store. It's set in the 90s, but um, it's one of those things. They have the listening booths mm-hmm. and they have a lot of vinyl. It's pretty cool. I, you know, I really like it. It's a teen movie. but whatever. Oh, I so missed that one. This reminds me of kind of a cross between Empire Records and the John Cusack store in High Fidelity. Oh, that one I saw. I think that the way she got that job was very interesting to me. This is another watershed moment, I think. So she was kind of haunting this record store because of the fact that you could listen and you could see the new things and meet the regulars. And the white woman, her name was Louise Cook, who owned the store, always treated Maya as a favored regular. And 
I was not something Maya was very used to. And after a while, offered her a job. And Maya's like, cleaning, probably. No, thank you. One more white lady. No, 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 says Ms. Cook. My sister decided to go back to school and I think you'd be great to take her place. You're so interested in the things and I really need help ordering all the, and she said Negro, but that's what, you know, I need help ordering all the Negro music and you know so much about it and I could really use your advice and your help and you're so good with the customers. I think the distrust was natural. Oh, yes. I mean, I think it would have protected her from a lot of things. And Maya wrote, what could I possibly have that she could want? My mind was a well-oiled machine, but maybe she offered me friendship because she pitied me. She would not dare. I'm going to go into that store and I'm going to roll her distasteful pity into a ball and I'm going to throw it into her face. I'm going to smash her nose deep in sympathy until her eyes dribbled tears and she learned that I was a queen not to be approached by peasants like her. That's literally from Maya's own hand. And that's how she was feeling. But her friend's like, you know what? It pays good. It might be fun. Just watch that white woman like a hawk. So she waited for the other shoe to drop month after month. It never did. She reveled in the environment of the record store, both the music she was exposed to from classical every morning with the morning coffee, all the way through to the blues at night. And then local musicians would drop in and aficionados and have expert conversations with her. It was an education, just every day, just steeped in something she really, really loved. Among the local performers that came in was a young man named Alvin Ailey. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) They struck up a conversation. Yes, I'm a dancer too, she says. And he says, well, let's see if we can have a routine. So they actually paired up and appeared in clubs. Al and Rita was the name of their troupe of two. She said that he wore a leopard print G-string and I wore a homemade costume of a few feathers and even fewer sequins. (laughs) Shades of Josephine Baker's banana skirt. And then one day, a white customer came in and asked knowledgeably for records by Black artists. Weird, Maya thought. That's weird. She was pointing out all the quote, white artist that he'd probably like better. And he was saying, nope, that's not what I want. His name was Anastasius Angelos, thankfully called Tosh. (laughs) It's Greek for Thomas. So, okay, I didn't know that. (laughs) Well, I didn't know it either. But in Maya's book, she actually said Tosh had to explain it right away. Oh, (laughs) and that's what he told her. He was an electrician. He was a former army guy. And he was attracted to her. He just wooed her. She fought it at first because she wasn't interested in dating him. But he won her over when he met her son because Guy and Tosh got along great. And they would all go to the park together and do all these family-like things until Maya was in love with him. She wrote, everything shimmered with beautiful color. She was very happy. And then when Tosh asked 24-year-old Maya to marry him, her mother went ballistic. A poor white man, what's going to happen to you? And Maya said dryly, well, I hope not much more than has already happened to me, which I'm like, you're right. Yeah. It is an early 50s and a mixed marriage, even in a big city like San Francisco, was still looked at with raised eyebrows. But Maya embraced the whole thing. She quit her job. She stayed home. She was a housewife. 
and Tosh was an electrician and he supported them and they all did things as a family. She was able to take modern dance classes again and get back into something she really loved doing, but didn't at the time provide her any income. So it was a hobby at best. But slowly over time, Tosh became more and more controlling, so controlling that he, as an atheist, you know, had a full scorn for the church. She would sneak out on Sundays, change into her Sunday clothes at her brother's house, go to church behind his back. Until one day, a church lady called the house and they needed some money to pay for her baptismal robes. And Tosh kind of got even more controlling because now he knew that his wife was sneaking around behind his back. While the marriage was kind of spiraling down, Tosh had always held this dream of becoming a musician. So the three of them moved to New York City so he could pursue that. And she, her dream of becoming a dancer, she could pursue that. Unfortunately, neither thing happened for them in New York. There's very few parts for Black women dancers at the time, and Tosh just never got a music career started. So they had to go back to California, and that's when we're flatlining. Yeah, they limped along for a total of about two and a half years. Maya wrote that the whole household was, quote, weary with failure. And when they finally did part ways, Maya grieved not so much Tosh himself, Tosh the man, but the freedom from uncertainty mm-hmm. that she had had, you know, as a wife, taking care of her household, et cetera. And now she was plunged back into the distress of not knowing where their next meal was going to come from. After the breakup of her marriage, she worked for a while to support Guy and herself at a club called the Garden of Allah, not the same Garden of Allah we talked about during the Zelda Fitzgerald episode with literary scions and many glorious figures talking about philosophy. No, but a rattle trap strip joint in a row of equally dubious places. And I thought it was funny that she made more money there than anyone else because she was honest with the customers. Like, look, for 25 cents, you'll get a drink that's all seven up. But if you spring for a bottle of champagne, at least it'll be real. I'll get two bucks out of it. And, you know, that's how it is around here. And they always appreciated her honesty and bought the bottle of champagne. And so she had more sales than any of the other girls. It was a controversy. I don't know if I should talk about that because I don't know if I want to get into how those places work. You know, I don't know. I thought it was interesting, but. Oh, okay. Okay. She stood out also in this place because she was wearing more clothes than any of the other performers. She was really just dancing to Calypso music where the other performers were doing your typical, you know, strip club dance. Well, while she was serving out her two weeks notice, unrest among the other ladies being what it was, the owner thought, you know, it's better that you go than all of the other ones. She caught the eye of a nightclub owner. Uh, The nightclub was called The Purple Onion, and it was real legitimate place. He was in the audience and... Maya sang at one of his parties. She was a guest. She wasn't entertainment, but um, she sang a Calypso song and it was like kind of on. Do you know a lot of songs like that? I know all the songs you know, in, <laughs> in the world, sir. I know all the songs. Uh, how do we get a hold of the musicians we need? What do we what do we got to do to get you to put an act together and come down to the Purple Onion? This is rad, you know. And so that's I mean, this is a legitimate theater. Bob Newhart came out of this theater. The Smothers Brothers came out of this theater. Much, much later, Zach Galifianakis 
performed there. Margaret Cho, Robin Williams. The act that was coming up at the same time Maya appeared there is so random and weird. Phyllis Diller made her debut right when Maya Angelou had just started. (laughs) They shared a bill. So amazing. This place sounds really, really very interesting to me. Well, this, as they say, was a big break. Um, The club only seated 60. Uh, It was packed to capacity. It was hard to get into. You know how that people are like, you know, ooh, it's fancy. It's hard to get into. (laughs) Uh, Reporters wanted to talk to Maya. She sang on TV. She sang on the radio. She wrote music to go with poems out of some of her old notebooks. She went now by the exotic name of Maya Angelou because they thought Rita Johnson is not going to bring in the hip crowd, you know? (laughs) (laughs) um, When she forgot the lyrics to the songs, she just danced. She just like was honest with the crowd in a way that Phyllis Diller was too. You know, they were, they just emerged at the right time with this attitude. Like, oh, look, I don't remember the rest of the lyrics. Let me give you a little dance. And they ate it up, you know, it was great. And then there were two major, major opportunities that presented themselves at the same time. She had won a part on Broadway, like the real Broadway, NYC, to appear with Pearl Bailey in a musical called House of Flowers. But the entire cast of a musical called Porgy and Bess, who had been taking the world by storm, it is so rare to have an all African-American cast, um, critically acclaimed. They used to come to hear her sing and watch her dance. And she loved their show to the point where she had called in sick one day just to go see it. She admired them to the point of her heart practically breaking into pieces. And they invited her to be a member of the touring company that was about to head off to Europe. This was not going to be a big part. And in fact, it's like neighbor number two. But they gave her the opportunity to travel. They're like, please come join us on this magical, mystical adventure. So what was she, what was she going to do? She got a major part. I mean, this is a speaking role with song solos. You know what I'm saying? Like Mm -hmm. big deal on Broadway. Also featuring her old friend Alvin Ailey. And Diane Carroll. Written by Truman Capote. This is a big deal musical. Or was she going to be neighbor number two in a production of Porgy and Bess? And she wrote, there was really no contest. I wanted to travel, to try to speak other languages, to see the cities I'd only read about my whole life. But most importantly, I wanted to to be with a large, friendly group of Black people who sang so gloriously and lived with such passion. Fortunately, she has the mother that she has, and Vivian said, whatever you decide is fine. I will take care of Guy. You go and do this. This is important. I'm supporting you. I will take care of him. So Maya chose Porgy and Bess. She said she packed my suitcase with my clothes and enough guilt to last a year. She had to leave her kid. And she lied to him and said she'd be back, quote, soon. We'll link you to, uh, like, Nina Simone singing the Strawberry Song from Porgy and Bess, the most famous song, Summertime, which, like a lot of Broadway shows from this era, hit the top of the charts, which I always am surprised about. I always forget about Greece and my own childhood. It happens oh. during my lifetime, too. Yeah. But anyway, so we'll link you to those songs. I actually don't have the range to sing Summertime. It goes too low for my voice. 
Um, <laughs> strawberry. It's funny because I try to sing strawberry and it's very operatic and the cats don't like it. <laughs> the cats don't like it. They don't actually hiss, but they do look at me angrily and leave the room. And I'm a pretty good singer. So let's just spare all of you from that. <laughs> so they went in the space of a year to 22 different countries. And within those countries, you know, how many different cities did she see? She got to go to Egypt. She got to go to France. She got to go to Spain, Italy. Oh, I mean, a place she'd read about Verona is in Shakespeare. And there she was in Verona. She's so excited. I mean, she had been hitting failure after failure after failure in this maze of life. And then here she is just like, it's almost like she was on a merry-go-round. And then it just flung her off into this magic trip. She taught herself Italian. She is so smart. She also taught herself French. And she took side gigs in cities where they were staying for a while, performing side gigs so she could make more money to send home to her mother and to Guy. Uh, sometimes she would give up her hotel room so she could take the per diem she was getting and send it back to them. It sounds like a sacrifice, but anything I read about this time, it was glorious. It was her junior year abroad. They sang at La Scala. That's I know. That's a famous opera house. They went to Greece on the Orient Express, you guys. <laughs> she rode camels in Egypt. She went to the Sphinx. She went to the pyramids. They were the first American singers to be invited to the communist regimes in Eastern Europe. I, I mean, she went to Israel and learned Hebrew folk songs. And like in return for them having taught her the Hebrew folk songs, she would sing African-American spirituals for the Israeli artists. Okay, so she, she would get little impromptu lessons on Middle Eastern dances, and then she would in return teach them, you know, movement and African dances and ballet. It's so amazing. Yeah. It, yeah. Well, I think that this tour was especially special because the State Department of the United States had funded the whole thing. They were spreading American arts all over Europe was the purpose. This is the troupe that they chose to represent the United States. So they had political backing behind it besides artistic backing. So it was a really big deal. And they were exposed to a lot that they had never seen before. And Maya wrote in her book, Wouldn't Take Nothing for My Journey Now, and I quote, Perhaps travel cannot prevent bigotry, but by demonstrating that all peoples cry, laugh, eat, worry, and die, it can introduce the idea that if we try to understand each other, we may even become friends. You know what time it is? <laughs> I know. It's time for me not to do that ever, ever again. But really, it's time for you to break up with your bad bra and fall in love with better bras and underwear from Third Love. Third Love uses the measurements of millions of women to design bras with all-day comfort and support. I've told you this before, and it's still true. All I wear are Third Love bras. Right now, I have a 24-7 on. I've had the one I'm wearing at least a year and a half. It's a perfect fitting bra still. If you haven't tried Third Love yet, just go to their website and take their fitting room quiz. 
After you take the quiz, several styles of bras and underwear will be presented to you, just like if you were in an upscale lingerie boutique. But instead of that traditional bra-fitting experience, you are in the comfort and privacy of your own home. The Fitting Room has helped 18 million women find their true bra size, and you could be next. But Third Love doesn't just have bras and underwear. They have loungewear. It's called The Lounge by Third Love. They mix and match shorts and pants and tops. So cute. So comfortable. Third Love knows your one true fit is out there. So right now they're offering our listeners 20% off your first order. Go to thirdlove.com slash chicks now to find your perfect fitting bra and get 20% off your first purchase. That's Third Love. Spell it out. T-H-I-R-D-L-O-V-E dot com slash chicks for 20% off today. So the show had been in Rome for a few weeks when Maya got some bad news from home. Vivian told her that Guy had developed a skin condition that they had been going to the doctors and nobody could diagnose it. Nobody could help him. And he was really missing his mother. Maya went immediately to the producers and she was obliged by her union to give two weeks notice, but generously told them, I'd have to leave in a month. So I'll give you a couple extra weeks and I will never forget you. And the producers sat her down and said, number one, we don't have to pay your fare home. So good luck with that. And number two, you yourself, if you leave, have to pay for your replacement's travel here from wherever in the world she may be. In mm-hmm. 1950s money, 1K. Wow. And she's panicking. What is she going to do? What is she going to do? Well, activate the network. One, Ada Smith a.k.a. Bricktop, who used to teach Cole Porter's guests the latest dances, who was a friend of Wallace Simpson, who was a friend of Zelda Fitzgerald and Josephine Baker. 20 years before, she'd been the toast of the town with Josephine. She was the current owner of the hottest nightclub in Rome, and she gave Maya a gig and fed her so she could save even more money. Dancers at the Rome Opera House paid her to teach them African dance techniques. Did they really need to learn this or was this a way to give her some money and keep her pride? That's what I think. I do too. It was just nobody can rally around quite like theater or restaurant people, I think. And both of them really came through. So she was able to get on a ship, go to New York, and then get back home to San Francisco within about two months which is pretty fast considering all the obstacles she had in front of her. So she was home and she was devastated by both Guy's physical deterioration and by his fears that she would leave again. She blamed herself. All those feelings came back from when she was a child. This is all my fault. I'm bad. The world will be better off without me. I've ruined my son both inside and out by neglecting him. And she fled to the wise counsel of her friend and voice coach, who she called Uncle Wilkie. Uncle Wilkie's therapy involved giving her a bottle of scotch, sitting her down and telling her to get herself together, essentially, but in a loving way. He had her write down all her blessings. And at the end, he said, now write, I am blessed and I am grateful. And then he said the thing that I think was the most important, forgive yourself. You've done nothing wrong, so forgive yourself, which is effective. I 
I feel like, and this might have just been the times that they kept dismissing her real feelings and telling her to bootstrap it. Yeah. I agree. But what in their own lives, what do they have to compare it to? I guess, you know, missing your kid, your kid missing you. That seems like, you know, inconsequential and big scheme. But as a mother, it's like everything. Right, right. Well, anyway, she went back to Guy and reassured him and said, from now on, where I go, you go or I don't go. And um, so she actually went down to the agency and had that written into her contracts from then on that there would have to be transportation and a place for her son. Well, sure enough, a contract came for her to perform at the clouds in Hawaii, Honolulu's smartest nightclub with Hawaii's (laughs) brightest stars. That's what the ad says. The downstairs was called the Little Dipper and then upstairs was called the clouds. I thought that was kind of cute. And evidently, Hawaii had a huge jazz scene. I loved reading about this particular rabbit hole. Acts from New York City, Chicago, LA would just seize the chance to perform in paradise, as it were. Well, Guy disappeared the very first day after they got there and no one had seen him down at the hotel at breakfast and police were out looking for him. Maya was a wretched mess. One child disappears, she wrote, and the sun slips out of the sky. Hours, hours later, he was found covered in sand, perfectly happy in a swimsuit she didn't know he even owned, having been swimming in the ocean all day. He was brave. He was independent. He was so happy until the police came. (laughs) And he had strolled out to a fancy breakfast in another hotel across the street. With with what money, Maya? (laughs) How did you eat breakfast? And he looked at her like she was a super dum-dum. And he pointed to the giant marquee that said Maya Angelou. And I just said Maya Angelou's my mother. She's the best singer in the world. And I signed my name and I walked out of there. (laughs) Welcome to Hawaii. (laughs) She, of all people, should not be surprised that her child is this independent. You know, she's very independent, or she was at a very young age. So, yay. Good job. His skin did clear up. It was kind of like an eczema, severe eczema. So no no doctor's remedies were working on it. But I think as time went on and he rebonded with his mother, that cleared up. And actually, this is when he changed his own name to Guy. He's 10. He says, don't call me Clyde anymore. You can call me Guy. All right. I like it. Well, after a brief fling with living the beatnik lifestyle, we might say hippie if it were a little later in time, but right now it's beatniks on a houseboat commune to which Mother Deer came to visit in her diamonds, furs, and stilettos like some kind of duchess trying not to officially hold her nose. Maya could not stand the smell anymore herself, especially of Guy, who never took a bath. Welcome to people who are 10, though, Maya. Yeah. This isn't the commune's fault. No. And she got some white friends to rent her house in a fancy area of California called Laurel Canyon. Maya said of Laurel Canyon proudly, I only received a few threatening phone calls. So (laughs) I guess that's success. She bought a cool vintage car, took the top down and said that she felt like an eccentric artist instead of the only black woman in striking distance. She would obviously, she was very outgoing, meet people. She would hang out in a coffee shop and there were the regulars and she was one of them. There was one guy that was extraordinarily obnoxious, but striking up a conversation with his friends, she got along with them. So she decided, well, if they like him, he must be okay. My my radar's off. 
they decide to go for a drive. And this man is driving the car. While he's crossing over a railroad track, he stops the car in the middle. And everybody's like, go, go. Then they see a train coming. And Maya is just screaming, go, move the car, move the car. And the guy at the very last instant finally moves the car. And she is just traumatized. And that's when she learned that when someone shows you who they are, believe them the first time, which is one of her very famous quotes. They all got to come from somewhere. I know. Now, during the course of her life, Maya wrote many and said many wise things. A lot of things are attributed to her that she didn't say. And this is really common. There's actually a name for it. It's a Churchillian drift. And it basically says, if something sounds like it should be coming from someone, you give it to that person. You say, that's the person who said it when they didn't. There's a lot of misquotes that are floating around on plaques and T-shirts and everything. And it's not something that she said, which is really sad because she said so many great things. There are a couple of websites that you can search quotes before you put them on anything. One of them is a quote investigator. That's the one that I like the most. And I'll link you up in the show notes. But things like this is attributed to her and she may have said it at some point in her life, but she wasn't the first person to say it. They may forget what you said, but they will never forget how you made them feel, which I had always thought was a Maya Angelou quote, but apparently it's not. I said, hey, ho, Rumbelow the other day and got lots of (laughs) positive attention, but I certainly didn't invent it. And I didn't invent the word concernicus. Or women of negotiable affections. Right. And things are being associated with me that I do not take credit for, but I would not be opposed to say... Somebody putting Concernicus on a shirt. Concernicus. <laughs> Becky Graham. Okay. But you know what I mean? Like, I get it. No. I get it. You want to be accurate, especially if you're making a, a plaque or dedicating a building or, or whatnot. But um, it does follow her general drift. Out, and I would not be surprised if, if she subscribed to that. Later in time, she was put on a U.S. postage stamp with the quote, A bird doesn't sing because it has an answer. It sings because it has a song, which is not her quote. It's from Joanne Walsh Ogland in a children's book called A Cup of Sun in 1967. She wasn't even writing in 1967. Right. There is a book. Who's to say, if I remember to put it into the media section, there is a book called Hemingway Didn't Say That, The Truth Behind Familiar Mm -hmm. Quotation. Yes. There's a a British radio show that's been on for a million years that investigates quotes. Hmm. It's called Quote Unquote. It's a radio show. Uh, There's a newsletter and and they investigate misquotes or quotes that may be misquoted. All right. So we have Maya Angelou, eccentric artist, driving around in her car in Laurel Canyon. And then a real genuine eccentric artist came to dinner. Uncle Wilkie brought none other than Ms. Billie Holiday over to visit. You're sassy, said Uncle Wilkie. She might like you. If she doesn't, then that's your <laughs> You got any gin around here? Well, she did. But what followed is the most surreal four days. Billie Holiday praised Maya's fried chicken, questioned her about it first, and got Maya's back up. There was like a staring contest situation. To which Billie Holiday was the one to back down. Friends of hers would be very surprised to know that she apologized and said, I, I'm sure you know what you're doing. Billie Holiday's like, I don't eat raw chicken now. Yeah, right. <laughs> and there was a, a frost in the air. 
Billie Holiday had no filter about anything. In fact, I can't even, speaking of quote, quote Billie Holiday, it would be like bleep, 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 bleep. Billie Holiday took Guy to the store to get new clothes because she said he looked like a field hand. She sang songs. She told off-color stories and let her chihuahua drink out of all the glasses in the house. She enraged Maya by giving 12-year-old Guy a vivid description of a lynching and then enraged Maya a second time by heckling her. Heckling her act from the front row of the nightclub. Maya was so mad that she left the stage and followed her into the bathroom and they had a horrible fight <laughs> to which Billie Holiday laughed and said, you're going to be famous, but sure not for singing. Don't get all mad. You already know you can't sing all that good. Billie's rough. <laughs> Keep your son with you as you get famous. That's who you can trust, said Billie. Hey, get me a taxi. What is happening? She was, as Maya described her, a, quote, whirlwind with a waterfront mouth. She also as we recall, mess with Ella Fitzgerald too. But Ella Fitzgerald was too nice a person not to take it personally. But Maya sort of saw Ms. Holiday as like yet another survivor. I might not like her, but this was this was some kind of four days. <laughs> you <Yeah>. know? <laughs> she didn't really internalize. Like, everybody knows I'm not the best singer. Whatever. I'm the one earning the money. So whatever. Right. There's a movie that's streaming now about Billie Holiday, and this is towards the end of her life. So as she got rougher in that movie and more no-filtered, that's where she is here. She's only going to live for about another year after this encounter. So Maya began to write, seriously, not just journals, but sketches, uh, song lyrics. She recorded, at this point, a six-song album for Liberty Records called Miss Calypso. She's fiery on the front and a flame-colored red dress, and she began to write plays. She showed her play to a screenwriter that she knew who'd had ties to the larger African-American literary community back in New York, and he urged her, you know what you should do? Develop this talent. You should move to New York. You should join the Harlem Writers Guild. It's kind of a network of authors who all get together to support and critique each other's work and just kind of be there for each other. It had been an offshoot of a federal project called Committee for the Negro Arts. Uh, when that was defunded, this group stuck together and said, we're doing great things here. Let's organize ourselves and form this guild here in Harlem with some pretty big names. I mean, I'll just say Zora Neale Hurston was one of the first members, but also Langston Hughes. She read Langston Hughes as a child, and she's meeting him. In a room with one's heroes. That's right. And so Guy and Maya headed for the Bright Lights in Big City. And at the first meeting of the writer's group that Maya went to, she read her play, and they tore it apart. And Maya was very upset, even though she knew as she read it out loud, like, this does not sound like it was in my head, you know, <laughs> like she kind of <laughs> knew. But she at least thought people were going to have this polite veneer. No, there's no polite veneer. They tore it apart until the leader said, we're glad to have you. We think you have talent. But in this group, we remind each other talent is not enough. You have to work. And so she looked at him for a while and said, what's the hardest kind of thing to write? Short stories, he said. Short stories are almost impossible for anyone to write properly. And she goes, well, then you put me down for a short story next time then. Good night. Well, that's the job of a critique group. It's hard to take. And, you know, some are nicer than others. But I guess she had never been a part of one up until this point. So that would be a 
jumping in the deep end critique group for sure. Well, and you know what? Over drinks, like months later, over drinks, everyone had a story about the first time they read something there and it got torn apart. And so Mm -hmm. it wasn't exactly hazing, but it was more like when you jump in the swimming pool and it's awful cold, but after a while you get used to it. Like the Mm -hmm. first time any of them, bar none, read a thing, they felt like they had been through some kind of gauntlet. At least they respected her enough to treat her the same as everyone else. So that's good. Well, she vowed after this exposure to, you know, real writers that she was going to give up show business and take up her new career. She was going to be a writer, a professional, full-time writer, and she was going to have something to say. And then the Apollo came calling. (laughs) The Apollo. Well, okay, maybe a finale. Okay. (laughs) Just one more. That's right. So she went on the stage to sing Calypso, well enough received, and then did a brave thing. Every night, she closed her act by encouraging the audience to sing with her an African song called Uhuru, which is Swahili for freedom. She told the crowd, the Apollo crowd's too sophisticated to participate in any kind of sing-along. Maya, you're going to go out there and bomb. And she's like, "Mm, so I will. The end. You do you. Okay, I will. She got out there and said to the audience, if you believe you deserve freedom, if you really want it, believe it must be yours, then sing with me. And then taught them how to sing the song. And every night there was a full choir of voices and thunderous, thunderous applause. And she later wrote of this moment, even as I bowed, I knew the applause was only in small part for me. I had been merely the ignition which set off their fire. It was our history, our painful passage and uneven present that burned luminously there in the dark theater. For the times were changing. You know, I was struck by the mention, it was just a passing mention of the African-American TV stores leaving all the display TVs in the window on the news to learn about world affairs. There were channels that covered the United Nations and they were on the TV everywhere. People were talking about equality, about civil rights. African-Americans began appearing in the otherwise conservative crowd there in New York City dressed in bright African prints with their natural hair, quote, like bright sails on a dark sea. Lovely. As Maya was getting involved in her new community, one day at a church, she was able to hear Martin Luther King Jr. speak. And the words that he said just fired her up. Martin Luther King's message there on the stage. The South we might remember is gone. There was a new South, a more violent and ugly South, the country where our white brothers and sisters were terrified of change, even though it is inevitable. They would rather scratch up the land with bloody fingers and take the Declaration of Independence and throw it in the deepest ocean than admit justice into a seat at the welcome table. We, the black people, the most displaced, the poorest, the most maligned and scourged, we have the glorious task of reclaiming the soul of the country. We, the most hated, must take hate into our hands and by the miracle of love, turn loathing into love. Are you spring cleaning? Are you tired of ignoring that box of old tapes and photos? 
Look, I have been there. And here's my pro tip. Legacy Box. Legacy Box is an effortless way to have your aging tapes and films and photos digitally preserved for generations. Look, that box is full of your memories, your family's memories. Wouldn't you like to bring new life to that old media so that you can share it with others and ensure that your family's legacy is digitally preserved on a modern format that's very easy to use? When we were organizing my mom's house, we turned to Legacy Box. It was so fun to look at all those forgotten photos some I had never seen before. And the VHS tapes that we found, we couldn't play them because we didn't have a VHS player. And we wanted to be able to share that feeling that we had, that joy of seeing the past with all of our family and closest friends. Legacy Box couldn't be simpler. They send you a box. You fill up the box. You send in the box. Their team creates a digital archive by hand. Then you'll receive your new copies that are stored on a cloud, a thumb drive, or a DVD. And of course, all of your original media. Go to LegacyBox.com slash chicks to join more than a million other families who've used Legacy Box for just a fraction of the regular price. Take advantage of the 50, that's right, 50% off today. They'll send you the box and you send that Legacy Box back to them whenever you're ready. Go to LegacyBox.com slash chicks and save 50% while supplies last. Martin Luther King had filled the room with energy and filled Maya with the drive and the inspiration to be a part of the whole thing. Maya decided that her contribution to Martin Luther King's organization, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, was going to be a play, a benefit, and any funds would be donated to this organization. So she sat down and she started to write a play. And she wrote garbage. She knew it was garbage. She couldn't get past it. She talked to her writer friends. They were giving her suggestions and she just couldn't get past it. She had this lofty idea of this play that was going to touch the hearts of everybody that heard it and saw it, but she couldn't get to that point. And she was just trying too hard. And Guy had a very succinct piece of advice for her. If it don't fit, don't force it. And so she turned the project into something else. It was a cabaret, and she was able to collect a whole bunch of entertainers and put on a cabaret night with just acts, act after act, which raised $9,000 for the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, which in today's money is about $80,000. Not too shabby. Because of her work in that fundraiser, she was offered a position at the Southern Christian Leadership Conference as a regional coordinator in New York City. Of course she took it. She got an office. She got a secretary. She organized fundraising events and the volunteers and spoke to community groups just like Martin Luther King Jr. had been doing about the work of the SCLC. She um, wrote that her days were crammed with phone calls, taxi rides, and serious letters reminding the mailing list that freedom was costly and a donation of any amount was a direct blow against oppression, which held a helpless people enthralled. Not only was she doing this very important work, but she finally had her very first published story 
Okay, it was in Spanish and it was in a magazine that was only available in Cuba. But she was an official professional writer because she got paid for it. It's a big deal as a writer, that first check that you get for your words. It's you never forget it. So Martin Luther King himself came to thank Maya for all of her work during the months that she was the administrator. Also, Harry Belafonte makes his first appearance in this story. Uh, He seems to be the hub of a new movement of intellectuals and celebrities taking up the cause of civil rights. And we talked about his involvement before during the Fannie Lou Hamer episode. So I was not as surprised as I was last time. (laughs) But so he's circling around again. So just to let you know, we have a what do they call those like a special guest star? When they reoccur. Oh, reoccurring appearance. Yeah, there's yeah. a word. I don't know what it is. <laughs> so Maya met a man named Vazumsi Make, who everyone called Vuz, <laughs> which is easier, when she was 32. And Vuz was a South African anti-apartheid activist who was in town to petition the United Nations. Like you do. There's some street cred for real if you're an activist. And even though she was engaged to someone else, Vuz's passion for his cause and his respect for her son really impressed her. And there was the promise of making a difference on the world stage. Miss Angelo, he said, I am going to take you to Africa. (laughs) But first, they had to go to London because he had to give a speech. And they told everyone that they were married, though no wedding ever actually took place. There is a lovely story of Maya in a room with African women from many, many nations. And they were telling their stories, their folklore. And she returned the favor by telling these African women, the stories of Harriet Tubman and Sojourner Truth. They were so touched by her story. And then right after that, the not very lovely story that I bring to you of the enforcement of gender roles in the New York City house when they got back. Vuz and Guy participated in lively talks about the rule of nonviolence or religion in Africa and how it helped or hindered the movement toward equality. What is the role of women? Meanwhile, the woman, Maya, Served the drinks, mopped the floor, endured his nitpickery about how much dust was in places, you know? Mm-hmm. She was a hostess for their parties. She made the meals that they entertained quite a bit. She left her job to be a wife and a homemaker and a mother at home, but she quickly found that it wasn't as fulfilling as she would have imagined. Even though they were living in this really swanky apartment in Manhattan, she did become active in pro-Cuba and anti-apartheid movements. She met and listened to Malcolm X and absorbed his strong views that separation of the races was the only way forward to coexist without interacting in America. Meanwhile, at home, she just felt pressed down, pressed down by her husband's domestic expectations. And he forbade her from appearing in a play that she was invited to participate in called The Blacks, which was kind of a contemporary reflection on what was really happening in the United States with regard to race relations. She would have acted with Cicely Tyson, James Earl Jones, but her husband said no wife of an African leader may ever go on the stage. He was very obsessed with status. Like she had furnished their apartment with used furniture and he was so offended. And Vuz had to read the script and give his approval. 
And she said, when I gave him my loyalty, I did not give him the rights to my entire life. So (laughs) I think he maybe has a tiger by the tail a little bit, but he doesn't know it yet. No. (laughs) And she was able to appear in this play. It was a very short run, but she got to perform on stage again. So ultimately, Maya left the show before the end of its run over a principal. She had written some songs and the producer said he wasn't going to pay her for them. And she was very irritated. Like, oh, you're just the last in a series of white producers who take African-Americans work and don't pay them for it. And I don't know how I'm going to be able to stay here. And she went home and she's ranting about it. And her husband is like, I will handle this. And he sent a telegram to the producer that says, Mrs. Maya Angelou Make will not be returning to the Blacks or to the St. Mark's Playhouse. She resists the exploitation of herself and her people. She has closed. Signed, Buzuzumi Linda Make Pan-African Congress, Johannesburg, South Africa, currently a petitioner at the United Nations. The end. Well, he took care of it. (laughs) And then he just looked at her and said, unless he wants an international incident, that will be the end of it. I'm like, (laughs) so he was good for something. Yeah, but he was also bad for something. This is something that he had been used to, but Maya absolutely was not. She became the target of South African apartheid supporters. They totally creeped her out. They would call the house. They were threatened violence on her or on Guy, and she would get the phone number changed, and they would somehow get it again and keep calling and threatening her. Vuz just brushed it all off. It's like, yes, that happens. It's just a part of my job. He also was a little bit like, finally, it's kind of offensive. They didn't think I was important enough to harass until now. (laughs) That's where his mind is. Like, at last, I have detractors. (laughs) Well, another thing that he was brushing off was paying their bills. Maya just assumed that he was taking care of it. It's a traditional male role, right? One afternoon, the sheriffs came and nailed a notice on Maya's front door. Surprise, you've been evicted for non-payment of rent. You have 24 hours to get out or an army of deputies will simply take everything in here and put it on the curb. Vuz had not been paying the bills for all of that giant roll of money he liked to carry around and peel notes off of. She was very embarrassed. People knew. People knew. And she was surprised. It was like an unpleasant, very unpleasant surprise. And she couldn't speak. She was so much in shock. And Guy was her rock. Like, we'll get through this. We've gotten through worse. We'll get through this too. And Vuz parked them in this hotel ramshackle for a few weeks while he got his plan together for the big escape. Vuz had an announcement one day. They were all moving to Cairo. It's a done deal. Pack your bags. We're going. And not having any other options, Maya and Guy did. They moved to Cairo with Vuz. I liked how when they landed, Maya asked the man who had picked them up, uh, is this a is it a festival today? What What's happening? It's so colorful and, and busy and it's loud. And he looked back at her and said, it's Cairo. Ma'am, it's just like this. <laughs> Welcome to Cairo. And they got to the home Vuz had prepared for them. And there were such fancy things. And she thought, is this my house? Who would rent this with all this fancy stuff in it? This is really foreign to me. And it turns out Vuz had bought all of these fancy things and gilt mirrors. And they had a gardener and they had a cook. And and she's just like, what has my life become? Maya enrolled Guy in an American school in Cairo. He loved it. 
Her life, although it was in Egypt, was very similar to her life in New York. She was a diplomat's wife. She was a hostess. She ran the home. She made sure that every speck of dust was gone, which I imagine would be harder in Cairo than in New York. Oh, man, all that sand getting in every corner. Yeah. Well, one VIP that she got to meet, who actually his stepfather has crossed our show before, the stepson of W.E.B. Du Bois was the only African-American journalist working in Egypt, David Graham Du Bois, no relation. And they became, you know, if not great friends, at least significant acquaintances, which came in very handy because there was another unpleasant surprise awaiting our friend Maya. Vuz paid his bills in Cairo the same way that he paid his bills in York, meaning he didn't. And the people came to repossess all that fancy furniture. And Maya is, again, embarrassed and saying, what are we going to do? I'm going to get a job. And Vuz says, no, no wife of mine is going to work. You're not going to get a job. But she put her foot down. David Du Bois had an opportunity for her at the Arab Observer newspaper. It was an editor's position, and Maya took it. David Du Bois knew the president of the Middle East Feature News Agency and told him that she was, quote, an experienced journalist, wife of a freedom fighter, and an expert administrator, which, if you examine it, is two-thirds true for certain values of the word wife, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> Here's the thing. She knew him well enough to know that she is like, my husband should not be embarrassed in this way as to have people come take his things and I will help the family and tried to kind of, for lack of a better word, Scarlett O'Hara it up. And he's like, ah, I appreciate that. That is very loyal of you, but you will never be able to get a job here. You just don't understand how it is. And she's like, actually, I already have one. And then he got <laughs> giantly incensed and he goes, you tell Mr. Du Bois that you mistakenly left here as an American woman, but you have come back and I have explained that you are an African wife and that he must not depend on you to be at that job. So crazy. He only accepted her role there when David Du Bois came special and said, your wife said you were working so hard that she was worrying about your health, that no one man could continue to do all you do without help. She said, most African men in your position would never allow their wives to work, but that you were a revolutionary. (laughs) That worked great. But he insisted on walking her to work, which she was so mad about. Like, come on now. I can walk certainly by myself. But it turned out to be the thing that eased her way into the office because all the men at the office were very concerned that she was going against tradition and defying her husband. And the fact that her husband showed up and shook hands with everyone and said, this is my wife, made them go, oh, he must he, he must be all right with this. So she's legitimate. You know, we don't have to have stress. So he was accidentally helpful again. So she, no slouch when it comes to work or research, set herself a goal of kind of self-teaching herself with what resources she could cobble together, the history of the area, the um, geography of the area. She was self-taught like back in the library as a little girl. And she did so well in her job in the print media that she was able to start writing commentary for Radio Egypt. She is a legitimate journalist. All self-taught and all within a year. 
That's the part that amazes me. She was very successful. But then she started to look around and she realized that Vuz was cheating on her. And his his opinion was, it doesn't matter. That's just physical. You're the woman I love, blah, blah, blah. And she's not buying it. So she decides that it's time for her to pack up and move on. And then she gets called to what is just like an intervention. There's like a, a conclave has been summoned. And half the room is to argue on Maya's side about their split. And half the room is to argue on Vuz's side. And, you know, the will of this conclave will become the will, etc. Mm-hmm. And after all this conversation, to which Maya is just bewildered, like, what is even, what is happening here? The conclave talked and then came out with their verdict and said, people from six countries of Africa have agreed formally that you are in the right and you may leave your husband. She's thinking, but does not say, I was going to go anyway, but thanks for the permission. (laughs) She could have moved anywhere in the world at this point, but Guy wanted to go to college. He was finally graduating high school and he wanted to go to the University of Ghana. So Maya said, all right, we're going to move to Ghana. She had a job lined up further along um, the coast in Liberia, which is just a a little bit further um, west along that particular African coast. And she uh, had a job waiting for her at the Department of Information. And, you know, so that was the plan. And she flew over Ghana and just started to think about her ancestors and the role of Ghana in the slave trade in in all of Western Africa and the misery they'd all been through. And it really, really came all like striking home to her. She just started to weep on the plane. It all overcame her, just how close she was to her own family's history there. And as we recall, Fannie Lou Hamer and everyone that went with Harry Belafonte on that trip sort of felt the same way. This is where it all began, the trauma that our ancestors endured. This is where our story emerged from. And a lot like Fannie Lou Hamer, when Maya got off the plane and she saw the community that had formed in Ghana. I mean, it was a former British colony that had broken with Great Britain just a few years earlier. But at this particular time, it was an entire Black community. When Fannie Lou Hamer got off the plane and she looked around and she realized that people that looked just like her were doing every job, not just jobs of a certain lower level. She was amazed by it. And likewise, Maya felt at home here, even more so because there was a very large growing African-American population in Ghana. It was another community that she saw herself in. Shortly after arriving in Ghana, Guy was in a car with a drunk driver who caused an accident. Because of this accident, Guy broke his neck, his arm, and his leg, and he faced a very lengthy hospital stay for his recuperation, full body cast. Maya was, like any mother would be, scared for her son, and her life kind of started to look bleaker than it had when she had just arrived in Ghana. She checked herself into the local YWCA, and she focused her life on being with Guy in the hospital as much as possible. But that community that she had seen, that African-American community, the, uh, the expats in Ghana, just held her up. 
They arranged a job for her at the University of Ghana in administration. They got a house for her to live in. After a two-month hospital stay, Guy was released to their borrowed house for three months of rehab. And eventually he could walk, although he was still in a neck brace. He decided he was well enough to finally do what he came there to do and go to college and moved into one of the college dorms at the very college that Maya was working at. Mm, I'm getting ready to face that emptiness within the next couple of years. I'm not looking forward to it. No. But she was able to get women roommates. So it wasn't like it was empty, empty. It was like golden girls almost, (laughs) much younger. Well, in addition to her job at the university, she was able to continue her career as a journalist. She worked for the Ghanaian Times. She was a feature editor of the African Review. And she started to feel at home, I think, for the first time in her life. Susan mentioned earlier how there was a large community of African Americans who had expatriated to this country. And that all goes back to literally the president of Ghana had overtly let it be known African Americans are welcome here. Only five years before Maya got there, this president had led Ghana to its independence from British colonization. We saw him before in our coverage of the crown. He was the one that danced with Queen Elizabeth and shocked the world. In a more recent development that echoes that of the years that Maya was there, the country of Ghana in 2019 put forth a program called the Year of Return 2019, especially timed to be 400 years after the first enslaved Africans landed in America, um, encouraging African Americans and people of African descent from all over the world to move to Ghana and become citizens. Back in Maya's time, the president was particularly interested in African-American intellectuals and political activists and especially civil rights leaders who could come be political advisors in his own country and help to build this new independent Ghana. And many took advantage of the invitation. Maya was able to travel around the area. And one day she was brought to a little village and she was mingling with the people at the market. And somebody thought that they knew her, that she looked just like somebody they knew. And during the same time, she was looking at someone who looked just like her grandmother. And she had this moment where she just thought this could have been where my people are from this very village. My blood could be running through these villagers. And it really connected her to the area like nothing else would. She, like she did both in Italy and France, began to learn the language that was spoken around her, a language called Fanti. Um, She learned with her skill in cooking to cook the dishes of West Africa. I actually really do like jollof rice, by the way. I have never had that. It's basically you cook rice in tomato sauce. Oh, um, okay. Kind of, it's hard to explain. Like no, as the water, it's tomato sauce. And then mm-hmm. it's got curry powder and mm, what else cooks? Ginger. Anyway, it's a vegetarian dish. Mm-hmm. In uh, one of her cookbooks, she tells a story about her favorite dish being red rice and her mother serving it to her. And 
the delight she had when she saw it. So it was probably very similar to that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. we'll have to look up a recipe for jollof rice. It's probably in one of your cookbooks that you have. Um, You've been cooking from her cookbooks. I have. I have. And that recipe for the red rice is in there. I haven't made it yet, but I know that I'm going to be making it very soon because it's a dish I know my husband likes. He likes Mexican rice. So it's very similar to that. Awesome. So we saw how Maya had been active in the civil rights work in the United States and her network of people with whom she was affiliated there. And on August 28th in 1963, back at home in Washington, D.C., 250,000 people plus of all races participated in the March on Washington. And as a note of support, Maya and about 100 other African-Americans that were living in Ghana at that time staged a companion march on the American embassy. And I'm sorry to say that that was the day they heard the sad news that Dr. W.E.B. Du Bois had died. So their celebration of unity across the ocean suddenly became a mourning vigil. The atmosphere totally changed. Ghana provided Maya with another opportunity as yet another luminary of the civil rights movement, paid a visit to Ghana. Malcolm X himself, who had started out preaching about the separation of the races and how it was key to moving forward in America, but he had made a trip to Mecca. He was a Muslim and he had made a pilgrimage and it had changed his life and his views started to change And he started to see that there was the possibility that there could be brotherhood between Black people and white people. And he now preached the equality of the races. And he kind of reconsidered his approach. And he said, everyone must learn. And that is why you must not shame those that have not yet had the opportunity to learn. Because there was a time when you did not know what you know today. Do not be in such a hurry to condemn someone because he doesn't do what you do or think as you think or think as fast as you do. You were once ignorant, you know? Yeah, uh, no, I'm, all I'm thinking is, wow, there's a lot of people on the internet that could use that lesson. But what I was struck by is that he has come down in history as this stereotype. He is a 360 degree person just like anyone else. And it was kind of this interaction in Ghana made me understand that he, you know, just like everyone else is kind of just groping for the way forward, you know, as he is kind of feeling the way he is shining a light so others can follow him. So he is the icebreaker. Mm -hmm. He, He takes the hard road and he's thumping it and making it smoother for the people behind him. So I was really, um, gratified to get to see that side of him. Mm, Yeah, me too. He would be a good rooster to cover. While Malcolm X was in Ghana, and this is a big deal visit. This isn't just some guy coming to Ghana. Malcolm X is touring and speaking all around. And Maya's group of friends were chosen to guide him around. So there's Maya driving Malcolm X around in her little beater car. And that's where he wanted to be because they were talking and they were getting to know each other. They were both enjoying each other's company. That even when he was offered a limousine, he's like, no, Maya can take me. She could take me to the airport. And she did. One of the things that strikes me about those conversations is she told him about her visit to that village. 
And he said to her, and she remembered this, you have now seen Africa. Bring it home. Teach our people about their homeland. And she really took that to heart. That was his solemn advice to Maya Angelou. Although Maya was very involved in the community, she was actually involved in the local theater. She had this nagging thought that just kept developing. And her conversation with Malcolm X kind of got it rolling even faster. She thought that while she was an African-American, the accent was on American and not on Africa, that maybe she didn't need to be there any longer. Maybe she could do what Malcolm X was suggesting. Guy encouraged her. He needed his independence. He was a young man, and she felt that it was safe for her to leave. So when Malcolm X offered her a job as a coordinator for his organization, the Organization of African-American Unity, back in the United States, she accepted. So here we are on the precipice of glory. Susan and I have been reveling in Maya Angelou's story. We have been obsessed with every detail of her life, and we have been talking, talking, talking. Those of you with a timestamp will realize, oh, they've been talking a really long time. And we started to realize, oh, no, we technically only have one segment to bring you the entirety of what Maya Angelou is actually famous for. <laughs> so unless you would like it to go like this, she wrote for television. I know where the cage bird sings. Oh, we're on TV. Poetry, poetry, screenplay, Tony Award. Oh, gathered together in my name. Oprah plays Kuti Kinte's grandmother in Alex Haley's TV show, The Heart of the Woman. I know why the cage bird sings. Make it to TV. Appointed to Wake Forest University. And Bill Clinton plays the sex. Autobiography, autobiography. Oprah. TV, TV, poetry, more autobiography. Phenomenal woman. Four poems celebrating women. Unless you want it to go like that. <laughs> I think we're going to have to have a third episode. So rather than try to cram it all in, we're going to do something kind of weird and make this next episode happen that covers really the entirety of Maya's, is it fourth, fifth, sixth career, <laughs> that of a professional writer. We are going to pull all of that together and put it into a third episode. And we won't make you wait two weeks for it. We are going to post that next week and then we'll be done. <laughs> so yes, it is three parts, but it's three consecutive week parts, which is also unprecedented for us. So I think that's the way to go if we don't want to cheat you out of really a phenomenal um woman oh <laughs> yeah that worked great all right so we will see you in a shorter period of time with part three of our coverage of maya angelo and our media section so thanks for coming on this particular journey with us thanks for listening bye if you liked what you heard today please tell a few friends or leave a review for us on your favorite podcatcher. The song in the middle is from our old friend James Harper writing as Harper Active. It's called The Bionic Bridesmaid. And the song at the end is Press On by Lute. Visit us in all the usual places. And don't forget to check out the Maya Angelo Pinterest board recently turned public and there for your viewing pleasure. See you next time. 